my superpower, you know, there, there's a bunch of different directions that I could take that. I think that I, I am, my wife would probably not say this is a superpower, but like I'm exceedingly detail oriented. Uh, I, I leave very little to the, um, for like open to like I, I try to leave very little open to interpretation when I talk about things so I'm, I'm very literal in what I say I'm I my you know kind of emotional side of things is very like cut and dry binary when when I think about things um, but you know I see I see the connections and interactions between disparate systems and, and I'm able to tie a lot of those pieces together in ways that I think a lot of people can't, um, you know, so I, I, I like to say that I'm, I'm not good at any one thing. I'm not like really good at any one specific thing, but I'm pretty good at a whole lot of different things that allow me to be able to tie them together in unique ways that, that others haven't thought of, so. Heroes are an inspiring group of people, every one of them from the larger-than-life comic book heroes you see on the big silver screen, the everyday heroes that let us live the privileged lives we do. Every hero has a story to tell, from the doctor saving lives at your local hospital, the war veteran down the street who risked his life for our freedom, to the police officers and the firefighters who risk their safety to ensure ours. Every hero is special and every story worth telling. But there is one class of heroes that I think is often ignored. The entrepreneur, the creator, the producer, the ones who look at the problems in this world and think to themselves, you know what, I can fix that, I can help people, I can make a difference. Then they go out and do exactly that by creating a new product or introducing a new service. Some go on to change the world. Others make a world of difference to their customers. Welcome to The Hero Show. Join us as we pull back the masks on the world's finest heropreneurs and learn the secrets to their powers, their success, and their influence. So you can use those secrets to attract more sales, make more money, and experience more freedom in your business. I'm your host, Richard Matthews, and we are on in three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to the Hero Show. My name is uh, Richard Matthews, and today I have the pleasure of having on Tom Colzer. Tom, are you there? I am. Thanks for having me, Richard. Awesome. awesome. So glad to have you here. I know we were just chatting before we got on. You're up in uh, in New England for the summer. Yes. Yeah. What's Enjoying the, the summer um, weather. What What's the summer like up there? Because I've only ever been up there in the in the fall and the winter, and it was cold. Uh, it can be cold. It's kind of cold and rainy today. It's like 65, 66 or so today, but it was in the nineties yesterday. Uh, and it's been, you, it's you, been you an, get plenty of beach weather. Yeah. So we're in a lake up here. So we spend a lot of time in the water and, and swimming and, you know, sailing and kayaking and all that kind of jazz. And, but yeah, it's been unusually, uh, dry and warm this summer. So that is a next on my family's list is to learn how to sail. Ah, so, there you go. Yeah, I have a little Hobie seen. cat, Hobie 16, that, that we like to nice. sail around with, with the kids, and they, they enjoy we've that. We've been uh, traveling in the RV for five years, and we just finished seeing all of the lower 48 states, and our next plan is to buy a, well, a big-ass sailboat and learn to sail port to port around the world. <laughs> oh, nice. So, okay. That is, uh, that is on the plans, and for my audience who's been following along with us and our travels, we're back in Florida for the next three months or so, so probably the next several interviews you'll see will be uh, us in Florida, and keep you updated on how we go with our <laughs> getting a boat with the sailing um, aspect yeah check the out sailing the uh, sailing la vagabond uh the, yeah, the yeah. family that that sails whatnot they're all so they we, also we use a Weber, the so. sailing sailing la vagabond and we uh we follow sailing zatara um okay family. Yep. yeah um, there's a, a smaller family that that uh is they just called the sailing family i think on youtube and there's a couple a couple with two kids 
Okay. There's another family that traveled for a few years. I can't remember their name, but they just stopped this last year. So they they got they went around the world with their kids once, and they're they're done now. I so. gotcha. Yeah, there's a bunch of them that are out there. So yeah, they, yeah. So Levacabon actually uses Aweber. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, I do for some of their newsletter and email stuff going out. So yeah, it yeah, was yeah, funny because like I followed their YouTube channel before I realized they were an Aweber customer. <laughs> so awesome. I got an email from them. I was like, wait a second, that came from us. <laughs> You're like, hey, I, I recognize that company footer. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, yeah. So what I want to do to uh, start off is just do a brief introduction for those people who don't know you. I'm pretty sure everyone knows the company you run, um, but you are the CEO of Aweber, um, company you started, I think it says here in 1998 to uh, help small business um, around the world better and more effectively communicate and build relationships with customers and prospects using per permission-based email marketing. So what I want to just start off the interview with is what is it that you guys do? Who do you serve? What do you do for them? Yeah, so we serve small businesses and creators uh, in mostly their email marketing needs. We also do uh, landing pages like website hosting type type things, as well as um, uh, like um, push notifications and those sort of things on the on their websites. But the bulk of majority of what we do is is email marketing. So think email automation, email newsletter delivery, um, you know, automated updates from like if you have a we were just talking about YouTube, like if you have a YouTube channel, you can create little automatic newsletters that go out so someone can subscribe and, and receive those. But we work with, you know, small businesses, both like you know, physical, you know, in-place stores and retail establishments to, you know, a lot of online, you know, digital only type creators uh, that have, you know, blogs and YouTube channels and, you know, you, you name it. Uh, we have customers that probably do it. <laughs> yeah. And you guys, you guys, you said 1998, that's, that's pushing 25 years it um, is in the email email space. Um, yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, you guys are probably one of, if not the biggest name in email marketing. Is that right? We're, we we share the space with a number of uh, well-known uh, you know competitors and so forth, but yeah, we're we're definitely up there as far as overall size and number of customers and so forth that we help. So we send billions of emails every month, uh, all permission-based, not spam. <laughs> I always like to clarify <laughs> that. Uh, and uh, you know we connect people around the world constantly, so which is which is pretty cool. And you know we've yeah. seen much more of a push towards email. Um, just with even as social grows, because so much of like social audiences and, and being able to see what you're um, putting out there is algorithm based. Uh, yeah. You know, if you've got a YouTube channel, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of your subscribers will actually see something when you put a new uh, post up on YouTube, similar thing with Facebook and Twitter and so forth. So being able to use those platforms to grow and curate your email list becomes uh, an asset and a communication pattern or communication path where you can reach many more of your people your more reliably. Audience, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I run a I run a small agency called Push Button Podcast where we help we help uh, creators create their audio and video podcasts like this one mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Um, and one of the things that um, we do all the time is we take whatever the RSS feed is for um, for their show and use the email triggers um, yep. in either active campaign or um, or Aweber or whatever system they use if they happen to have one already that lets us, you know, essentially suck in their newest piece of content with the title and the thing and like a whole bit so yep. that it goes out to their email subscribers, um, which generally is the 
biggest way to get them to actually show up and watch your content. Um, Absolutely. Because like you said, with the algorithms and whatnot, you're not always guaranteed that they're actually going to see your content, even if they're subscribed. Yeah, yeah, we have a couple of different tools. We have uh, a, a previous tool that we've used called Blog Broadcast that does that. We also have a newer tool that's part of our automation stack that's called Auto Newsletter uh, that does that, that allows you to pull in an RSS feed and really customize and tweak what it's doing. One of the coolest things that that um, that I think about it is you can not only pull in like your latest bit of content, but you can also re-pull in previous uh you know shows and stuff that somebody might have missed uh to be able to get to you know get that in front of them them some extra yeah content pieces one of the one of the things that people don't often think about is when you're pushing out that email and your you know your most fervent fans get that first they're clicking on that and they're feeding into the youtube algorithm and some of the podcasting algorithms on how um, popular your show is and how likely somebody is to actually click on that because they see all this organic traffic coming in and they're like, Oh, I don't know where that came from, but like people must be interested in it. So they're more likely to then show it to other audiences outside of your subscriber base, which has this really nice feedback loop of continuing to grow your subscriber base. And that doesn't really come if you're not doing the email component of it and the email component of it, it's really easy because you can automate a hundred percent of it and then it just runs. That's the best. It's like magic. Yeah. Yeah, That's my, uh, that's one of my favorite things is my, my, my clients, like we set, we set up that automation for them with their shows and they're like, Oh man, it just goes out every week. I'm like every week, we don't have to do anything. And they're like, Oh, you must be an automation God. I'm like, no, just using the tools that are already available for you. Yep. Yeah. And you can set them if so you you can tweak them before you want to send if you really want to do it that way. But like the best way to get people to actually do it consistently is to remove the person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just so let the automation do that. I say that's, yeah. that's essentially what we do with our, the push button podcast is, we, you know, most people struggle with getting their podcast out on a regular basis because all the work that goes in after you hit stop record, that's yep. what stops people from publishing all the time. So that's what our agency does. So you hit stop record and then we do everything else. We do the video editing and the audio editing and the uh, graphic nice. creation the written creation and the publishing and the distribution and everything that goes into it um, yeah. and the automation setup and everything so they just show up and do the one thing that they're good at um or not say the one thing that they're good at but like the one thing that they enjoy yeah. doing which is is showing the up recording. and actually recording the content yeah. right being the thought leader um and then all the hard work you know, that goes into like the stuff they don't want to do that's where we come in and just do that yep. for them that's so, excellent yeah super cool um so what I want to do is um, dive a little bit into your origin story, how you got into um, creating Aweber, right? We talk on this show, every good comic book hero has an origin story. It's the thing that made them into the heroes they are today. And we want to hear that story. Were you born by um, a hero or were you bit by a radioactive spider that made you want to get into permission-based email marketing? Or did you start <laughs> in a job and eventually move over to become an entrepreneur? Basically, how did yeah. you create Aweber? I got bit by a whole lot of flies when I was outside this morning, but I don't think that's doing me any good now. Um, no, so it's inter- It's kind of, I, I have like entrepreneurs in kind of my history of, you know, family and so forth. So like my grandfather, both of my grandfathers, my one grandfather owned a little print shop um, and my other grandfather owned a excavation business, um, you know, small sole proprietor, but think, you know, showing up in your backyard with a dump truck and backhoe and digging yeah. holes and that kind of jazz. Um, my mom and dad owned a, uh, garment factory for a number of years. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, me growing up, I was always mowing lawns and doing that kind of stuff. But back when I was in college, I was going to school for mechanical engineering and, um, 
ended up switching majors to finance and ultimately dropped out to start start my company. But while I was in school, I was selling wireless modems uh, back before we all had iPhones and Androids and high bandwidth stuff in our pockets. We dial up was still pretty much a thing when when the internet Um, made noise. Yeah, exactly. When the internet made noise, uh, now it makes noise, but it's a different kind of noise. The, uh, uh, and, and I was, I was selling these modems and I go to computer shows and other things and I sell them to truckers and business folks that traveled and it was a new novel technology and you really needed to explain it for people to get it. Um, And as much as that feels weird now, looking back on it, like you had to explain mobile internet, <laughs> um, but it was not a thing that existed. So it was it was just weird for people. They didn't understand it. Um, and so I, as I'd go to these computer shows, you know, people toss me their business cards and say, hey, send me some more information. Like, let's follow up later. Uh, and I would do that manually. <laughs> and that took a lot of forever. Time. Yeah. <laughs> and it was boring. Um, and, you know, some people got back to you and lots of didn't, uh, even though they stood right there and talked to me at a, you know, computer show. Um, so, you know, being the uh, lazy college student that I was, uh, you know, I figured out like, hey, let me write a little program that will send these emails automatically to these people that wanted more information. And, you know, I would write it like it came from me. And it was pretty much, I had pretty much my standard sequence of follow-up that I would send people when I was doing it manually. And I just wrote it into a little program. Um, And uh, during that process, it worked pretty well. uh, And I ended up sharing that same program with some other folks in different parts of the country that were selling the same wireless modem. And we would kind of collaborate on what messages worked really well. And it was a way for me to be kind of the hub of what worked really well. I knew before anybody else knew, so I could implement it into my sales cycle. And then I would share it out with everybody else. And it just became kind of this self-feeding, you know, feedback loop. Positive feedback loop, really was really positive but one thing led to another when i switched majors um you know i i wasn't doing all that great in school and i was like i need to cut a few things out to focus on school and i was like okay i'm gonna drop this wireless modem thing and you know focus on school for a little while take a break from that and when i did that i stopped doing it for everybody else uh and they I was doing it for free up to that. And so they all started coming to me and saying, Hey, that like email follow-up thing you were doing, like, I'll pay you for that. Can you turn that back on so I can do that again? And I'll pay you for that. And after a little while, it was only, you know, a handful of people that came back and said, Hey, I'll pay you for that. I was like, Hmm, maybe I don't need to sell this wireless modem thing. Maybe I can just sell this, you know, email, email thing that I was doing before. Uh, and that was the kind of genesis of, of AWeber. AWeber is is kind of a amalgamation of automated web assistants and kind of shortened it down. It's like, hey, web, hey, web ass. No, you can't name your company a web ass. That's a very different kind of company. <laughs> so it became a web <laughs> and the rest is kind of history. We do own a web ass.com. If you want to go there. <laughs> That's um, awesome. So, but uh, yeah, I always just... wondered where the name Aweber came from automated yeah. web assistance. That's good. Yep. So that's kind of the origin story. Lots of companies spend lots and lots of money on uh, on their company names. I'd like to say there was more thought put into it than that, but it was you know it was a unique domain name. It was short. It was catchy. Uh, it had some some meaning. 
Uh, albeit a lot uh, so of people don't know. But yeah. you guys got started in email before there were any regulations around email. Is that correct? Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, there wasn't really there. There were there were like, definitely like the lawsuits. Wasn't until 2003, I think. So it's like yeah, five years after you guys got started. There were some early stuff, but you know everything that we've always done has been permission based. We've never been you know, pro spam or anything like that. Um, so, you know, we, we take extensive action to make sure that our users are only sending email to people that have specifically requested it. You know, no buying purchase lists and importing them into accounts, no conference lists that you have dubious permission um, to, to be mailing, those, those sort of things. And we've always operated that way to our detriment or benefit, depending on how you look at it. But for me, I've, I've always looked at email as, you know, as, as a major company doing this, you have to look at it from the longer term, bigger ecosystem picture and while there are things that you can do to goose your profits and revenue in the short term in the long term you hurt the overall email ecosystem of how the world uses email um so we've we've always tried to kind of be you know on the on the like not try, but like we've always been on that like ethical side of using email in the right way that you as an email user yourself would want to receive. Um, you know, I don't ever want to have people on my platform uh, using Aweber in a way that I wouldn't want in my own inbox. Um, yeah. It doesn't mean that I agree with all the content that gets sent, but I agree with the permission practices and um, that sort that people use uh, when when they're using uh, Aweber and you know when they use any platform. When I talk about it in any form, regardless of what platform you use, so if you don't have permission to send emails, you're doing it wrong, <laughs> and you will yeah, yeah. you will have terrible results. <laughs> uh, it's just the way the filters work these days. Yeah, I don't know that the the idea that you just mentioned too that uh, you, you may not agree with everything your customers send, um, but as long as they have permission, that's actually I I really like that because, you know, you probably tell from my flag in the background I'm I'm a bit of a free speech absolutist myself, sure. and that's one of the things that's that's interesting about running a podcast platform is we have podcasters that say things that I'm not I don't particularly agree with, but I agree yeah. with their 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 permission to say it. Right? Yeah, there's um, you know. It... Yeah, the whole the, 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 there's there's a delta between free speech and like having an open platform. Um, you know, there are definitely types of speech that we don't allow on Aweber, um, yeah. just because you can't. You know, uh, it's not it's not healthy to the overall world and ecosystem, and it puts us at liability for you know all the rest of our customers. So we do have to, you know, kind of mediate that. Um, but we try to take as light a hand as you can possibly have on that. Um, you know, so. Uh, so one of the things I found interesting about um, about that sort of subject in general is is there is you you have to you have to take some sort of action like you can't just let anything anything go through but you have to have you have to have like thought about it um, and it's interesting because you're not you're not a um, what's the word you're not like a government entity or anything like that you're a private company so you have like your rules that you set up. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I mean, you know, someone has to play by your rules to play in your court kind of thing. Right. Um, and I, I, it's just, it's just an interesting sort of, I don't know what you call it. It's a, it's something that you have to, you have to be acknowledged, especially when you're at your size and the type of, you know, you guys, you guys serve people in pretty much every industry and every political affiliation and religious affiliation there ever was. Yeah. Um, so you have to, you probably have departments that talk about these kind of things. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's definitely a part of uh, of our overall conversation. It's a part of our you know abuse mitigation practices. It's you know it's part of being you know part of the global ecosystem. It's you know we don't just do business in the United States. We do business all over the world. Um, you know, and and we have to take you know there's certain types of actions that we take in different countries. Like there's certain countries we can't do business in, and you know keeping those users out is you know a problem because they want in, and there's lots of tools that can help them try to you know evade those sort of detections and that kind of stuff. So it's there's there's always a cat and mouse aspect of of what we do. Um, in the same time, like email is a tool that gets abused a lot. Uh, and um, a big part of keeping our platform good for all of the rest of our users is the fact that we're good at keeping the bad people out uh, that want to send, you know, the two spam lists or two, you know, phishing emails or, um, you know, scams and those sort of things. So, you know, there, there's always an element of, you know, content evaluation the, uh, that you have to do nigerian princes that reach out to you on a regular basis yeah exactly so you know <laughs> you name it we've seen we've seen all kinds of different stuff and and at the end of the day like there's an element of like there's there's our rules but there's also the mailbox provider rules of like if we send content to google or yahoo or microsoft that they don't want on their platform you send enough of it and a higher you know, high percentage of, of quantity and they just block your, you know, your, you know, they block those senders, they might block your whole network. So there's, you know, we don't just, we're not just playing by our own rules. We have to follow the rules of the platforms that we're sending email to. Um, and I think that that's, that's an angle that often, you know, when you start getting into that whole free speech conversation of like, well, we're sending, we're a commercial entity, we're sending to commercial entities, like, that's not where, like, that's not where free speech lives. Free speech is a yeah. government thing. That's a government principle uh, in the United States, which doesn't exist everywhere in the, in the around the world. Um, so it, it's it, definitely an interesting it's, conversation. It's a new, it's a very nuanced topic. Yeah, there's a lot of layers. So uh, and you're never um, going to make everyone happy. And, and, one, so, one of the things that I um, I I know we've discovered. I'm curious how you guys how you guys help your customers with this. Is you know you you get enough people to say opt into your list, um, and you start sending to them. You'll have a portion of them that never interact with your stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so they don't engage with it. And I, one of the things I noticed ISPs have started doing more often lately is that like if your engagement with your list is is low, mm -hmm. they will start making it so the people who actively do engage with your stuff don't see your stuff either. They all get start putting into either promotions tabs or junk stuff like that. So you like as an end user of email platforms, it makes a lot of sense for us at least to make sure we're we're splitting off our lists into people who are ac actively engaged versus people oh, who are maybe less engaged. Um, and I know like we have to think about that more actively. Do you guys, is that something you guys uh, like train your users on and teach them how to do and that kind of stuff? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's built into the platform as far as being able to segment your lists and looking at who's active and who's inactive and, and so forth there. So um, I, I would make one slight, you know, asterisk to what you said, like mailbox providers typically are not putting unengaged uh, emails in the promotions tab. Like a, a lot of people 
incorrectly talk about the promotions tab as kind of a spam folder. It's not. Promotions go to the promotions tab. Spam goes to the spam folder. So like, yeah, yeah. It, you know, we, we often have this conversation with, with customers. It's like, my emails are going to the promotions folder. And it's like, yeah. Is it a promotion? And you're, and you're exactly. And it's like, when I read it, it's like, you're selling stuff. That's a promotion. Like that's where it belongs. And if you don't want to be in the promotions tab, don't send promotions. <laughs> um, and, and they think that getting into the inbox is where everybody should be or where their email should be but like everybody else can go to the promotion tab like that's okay and it's like us. no every everyone is not a special snowflake and you don't get to make your own rules and if you send promotions you're going to go to this promotions tab it has nothing to do with the you know the platform that whether aweber or any other email marketing provider that you're using to send there it's all about your content and what you're sending to people um you know the spam folder is something that that happens more as uh, you're looking at the engagement of your list. And if you have low engagement, meaning people aren't opening and clicking the messages that you're sending there, and a too large of a percentage of your list um, becomes unengaged, eventually the mailbox provider, let's say Google Gmail, decides, well, you know, 80% of the, the people that they're sending to aren't engaging with what they're sending. The other 10% or 20% might be confused <laughs> and just clicking on it just because. So let's let's put it in the spam folder so and see how many people spam folder. go to the spam folder and pull it back out. Um, because that is instructive to their algorithms as well. Like when they make incorrect classifications, do those readers miss it and go looking for it and pull it back out of the spam folder? Because that action of pulling it back out will is also a signal to them yeah. to like, hey, That's make big, sure my stuff indicator. goes into the inbox. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, when you're looking at your list as a as a creator and as a sender, look at it as something where you want to have that engagement, but don't just treat people that unsubscribe as your unsubscribes. If they haven't opened and clicked in, you know, six to 12 months, they've already unsubscribed without having unsubscribed. So you should think about pruning those people off. You run a re-engagement campaign where you segment them out and maybe mail to them specifically to try to get them interested and, you know, click or open something. You will often see the stark delta between, hey, if I mail my unengaged people, I get like a tiny yeah. open rate and a tiny like single digit number. You can send to thousands of people and get like single digit opens and clicks. Nothing. And, and usually I'll get, you get somebody that's like, well, see, they're interested. It's like, no, but you emailed 5,000 people and like four people clicked. That's, yeah. you know, that's like statistical anomaly. People you can move back in. Yeah. Yeah. Those are four people that you uh, can move back in, but the rest, like they're gone and, you know, mail them a couple more times if you want, but the more you mail them, the more you're signaling to mailbox providers that like, Hey, these people aren't interested and I'm not yeah, listening to those signals. We, we set up uh, for all of our clients, we set up an automation essentially that's like, hey, if they go 30, 60, 90 days without engaging, like open click, those kind of things, um, it pulls them off the main list and puts them on a second re-engagement list where they get, I think it's like four or five emails that are just designed to like, hey, it looks like you're you're not seeing our stuff or whatever. It's, it's like a specifically written re-engagement campaign. Yep. And if they get to the end of the re-engagement campaign and they haven't hit the engagement signals, it just unsubscribes them, just removes nice. them from the list. Yep. So, yeah. Um, and that keeps the engaged portion of your list clean. Um, and you know, we, we see regularly people like, it's cause you know, we do coaching on this stuff. People are like, how do you get high open rates? And we like, we average like 40 to 80% open rates on our, on our emails. It's like, because we're just sending people who want to see our stuff. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this, that's like 90% of the job is just sending to people who want to see it. Yep. It's not rocket science. 
but like when when you when you explain it like that it's like oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. so so they yeah. you know when you when they want to hear from you and you send them an email they open your email and read it but a lot of businesses get caught up in the you know or individual creators or whatever get caught up in the like you know the the like oh i have 100 followers or i have 100 subscribers or 1000 subscribers or 10000 subscribers and it, it's always growing and it's like no nah, it really isn't um yeah and well, I had a uh, really instructive thing that happened with one of our clients. Just it, it, it wasn't email related particularly, but it gives an idea of like how engagement changes the profitability of your company. Um, and so like he had, he had 45,000 people that followed him on YouTube that were subscribed, had the notification bell, the whole bit, like 45,000 people. And then on his podcast, he had less than a thousand. It was like 860 people or so that were on his podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and that year we did $250,000 in sales from promotions to both his YouTube channel and his podcast. Um, his podcast with 870 people was responsible for $200,000 of those sales. And his podcast with 40,000 or his YouTube channel with 40,000 people was responsible for the other 50,000. Yeah. Um, and because the podcast listener is a more engaged listener, right? They're like, literally, they, they've got them stuck in their head. They're listening yeah. to you in the car and while they're doing dishes and doing the gym and what kind of thing. YouTube is just like, you know, scrolling through and oh, you see a video every once in a while. Um, it's a different level of engagement. So when you have, when you have someone's attention, it's, it's this definitely you know podcasts are are the absolutely the, like podcasting is the same kind of when you when you're looking at the equation there like it's very similar to email in the sense that when when i sign up for someone's podcast i get every episode because mm -hmm. it's, it's an rss feed in my you know in your reader that that pops through or you know which is essentially what all podcasting apps are these days um you know and email is the same sort of way like when i sign up for someone's mailing list i get every email that they sent it's not up to youtube's algorithm to decide whether or not you know sailing la vagabond's newest episode shows up in my feed that i happen to scroll through like there's there's no end to that feed it's not like an inbox where it's yeah. like oh i've checked it off i've seen all the things that there are to see um, yeah so it's yeah. just a, it's a very email, different user very... experience it's very engaged and the, um, you know, just cause I'm in the marketing spaces a lot. I've seen more and more people talking about the importance of email today as social grows and gets bigger. Mm -hmm. It seems like the importance of email is also getting bigger. And I sort of have a question for you on that. Cause you're definitely more involved in the email space than I am. One of the things I've noticed, um, is that like as technology grows, everything always uses email as a baseline, right? Like you can't get on Facebook without an email. Yep. Right? You can't get on anything without having an email. Right. And I'm curious if you see that changing at all in the future or is email always going to sort of be like the baseline requirement to interact with the internet um yes and no like the whole you know web3 crypto and a lot of that sort of stuff i think there's going to be some you know innovations there but that's still you know very much in its infancy and very techy um yeah it's very hard to keep up you know your average user is like, like i web... i i struggle to keep up with it and i'm pretty tacky <laughs> um you know it's like so... I, I say web3 isn't going to go anywhere until they can figure out how to get grandma to use it without knowing she's using, knowing she's using it yeah exactly so um so that you know so i see some evolution there there's definitely opportunity for evolution there when that's going to actually happen i don't know you know I, I i always hate to bring it up but like everybody has talked for decades about how email is going to die <laughs> every year more emails get sent than ever before with you know just as high of engagement as they ever have been 
so, you know, it's, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. You know, no new generation is, you know, yeah, everyone's using TikTok, but like, you don't, you don't talk with businesses over TikTok. You, you know, you're not sending your grandma a TikTok to interact with her. Like there's still other communication patterns besides just whatever the latest, greatest social fad is at the time. Yeah. Um, and you know, what's interesting is like even business deals that happen because of the first interaction on TikTok, they always move to email yep. afterwards. Yep. Yeah. Right? And you know, it's same with like our podcast. We do a lot of business from our podcast and yeah. it all goes from podcast to email. Yep. Um, exactly. And how did we, how did we set this up today? It all happened over email. email. <laughs> have, email. And so like, I, I love the idea, like people talk all the time about what, whatever the, the next greatest thing to die is. And it's funny to me how often I get like, cause I'm, I'm subscribed to probably every marketer's email list on the planet. Um, <laughs> and like probably at least twice a day, I get like a thing that says email marketing is dead. And I'm like, it always makes me giggle because I'm that like, they you're emailing that me. via email, <laughs> yeah, via email. And I'm like, email marketing is dead, except here you are using it to, yeah. uh, to yeah, tell yeah, me yeah. that it's dead. Yeah. When, when uh, they stop using email, I'll believe that it's dead, but until then uh, I'm not believing it. <laughs> So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your superpowers, right? Every iconic hero, um, you know, in the in the comic book space has a superpower, whether that's a fancy flying suit made by their genius intellect or the ability to call down thunder from the sky. Um, in the real world, heroes have what I call a zone of genius, which is either a skill or a set of skills that you were born with or you developed over the course of your career that really help you to help your people slay their villains, come out on top of their own journeys. And the way I like to frame it is like over the course of your career, you've probably developed a lot of skills and each one of those skills, there's probably a common thread that sort of ties them all together. And with that sort of framing, what do you think your superpower is that you've developed or that you uh, you, can't, you brought to the table for, for AWeber? My superpower, you know, the, there's a bunch of different directions that I could take that. I think that I, I am... <sighs> My wife would probably not say this is a superpower, but like I'm exceedingly <laughs> detail oriented. Uh, I I leave very little to the um, for like open to like I I try to leave very little open to interpretation when I talk about things. So I'm I'm very literal in what I say. I'm I my you know kind of emotional side of things is very like cut and dry binary when when I think about things. Um, but you know, I see, I see the connections and interactions between disparate systems and, and I'm able to tie a lot of those pieces together in ways that I think a lot of people can't, um, you know, so I, I, I like to say that I'm, I'm not good at any one thing. I'm not like really good at any one specific thing, but I'm pretty good at a whole lot of different things that allow me to be able to tie them together in unique ways that that others haven't thought of so um yeah it's it's it reminds me of i was having a discussion the other day with uh someone who who worked in both um software engineering and um in like business administration okay uh, and he, he 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 operates in that in the place where he can sort of translate for both worlds Yep. Uh, yeah. And, and that, like, that's, that's sort of a unique power, right? The ability to see all the things in different areas yeah. and be able to communicate, but like, Hey, this over here and this over here, like if they just talk directly to each other, they miss out on things. But when you have someone who's got like your skill set to both understand this side over here and understand that side over here that, that you can, you can yep. really help them. Yeah. 
I do like a lot of translating internally between like our engineering teams and like our customers and, you know, our marketing teams. And it's like, this is, this is why this is really, this, this geeky technical thing is really important because of, you know, Sally over here has this issue in her business and this is going to really help her. Um, and, and being able to kind of tie those things together and also like the, Hey, you know, this engineering, like you, you forgot this little thing over here. And like, that's going to cause a problem when it gets to over here. Um, so I'm, I, I feel like I'm, I'm every engineer's QA nightmare. Um, <laughs> it comes to me, I can always break it. <laughs> so like I, I uh, can always find something that won't work for me too. Yeah, pretty much. And I think I drive them from some of our engineers a little nuts sometimes with that, but it's like, damn it, he had it for 45 seconds and he figured out a way to break it already. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So just out of curiosity, how big is your guys' engineering team now? engineering specific uh it's 40-ish 45 people something like that give or take depending on how you, you define engineering are you guys so, dispersed all over the uh, all over the world for your engineering team or you have them all like centrally located yeah we're since so we were all physically in philadelphia uh up until kind of the beginning of covid and then uh we went remote with covid like most of the world Everyone did else. Yeah. um and then shortly thereafter probably six months or so into covid we decided to stay permanently remote um and uh we're all remote now so we were we had people being in philly we had people in like three different states kind of that like three four states pennsylvania delaware and new jersey are all kind of right there as is new york um and we were all out of that same office but now we're in 15 different states around the u.s um and uh predominantly u.s based we have a few few folks overseas but predominantly in the u.s um and uh, yeah, so we're entirely remote now. We actually just scheduled our first uh, kind of company retreat since the beginning of COVID in September. Uh, so we're looking forward to getting together. Yeah, that's meeting that's really people that I've worked because... with for two plus years that I've never met in person yet. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, it's really interesting because like my um, my my company we've been remote since before COVID, and so like we built it as a remote company. Um, and then so like I know a lot of companies went remote when when uh when it happened and i'm curious yeah. did you guys have any discussions about that before COVID about like the possibility of remote work and things like that or was it just because it was thrust upon you and have you seen that impact say like profitability or anything like that because you're not paying as much for like office space as you would have before um yeah so there's a couple layers to that so you know we definitely had like particularly being an engineering tech organization we definitely had like flexible um kind of work arrangements with a lot of folks where you know there were certain days of the week that some of the team would work remotely and whatnot so we've always had a component of remote to what we do but we were all still in the office you know it's probably mm -hmm. closer to what people would call hybrid these days yeah. um and, uh, you know, when we went, you know, so we'd spent a lot of time talking about what worked and what didn't work with that. I was always a big proponent of being in person. Um, and, and I always, you know, in the ways that I've talked about it during like our all hand company events is you either need to be all in person or all remote because what ends up happening and what I'm, I predict is going to happen with a lot of hybrid companies is there become two classes of team members in that there are people that are on site and there are people that are remote and the folks on site, when you're on site and you expect to see Richard tomorrow, I 
I'm not going to take notes and create written documentation the same way that I would if everyone is remote and that you have to when everyone is remote to be able to communicate asynchronously. Um, mm -hmm. So the communication becomes very different. So think that conference call that you had when, you know, you're in a you know, you're in a conference room and there's five or six people huddled around one mic and one camera looking at everybody and everybody there has a really nice interaction. It's very interactive and two way, but then the like three or four people that remoted into that meeting, they're just like off on a screen in the corner and, and you, you have to be like, Hey, I have something to say, you know, and those people tend to get left out of, of those conversations. And, you know, then when the meeting is over and everyone walks out of the room, what do you do while you're walking down the hall? You continue talking about the stuff you yeah. were just talking in there. And, you know, you, hey, we should talk about this. Or, oh, did you think about this? And everyone that's remote now misses that because the meeting was over to them. Uh, whereas when everybody is remote, you know, almost we talk extensively. We use Slack um, extensively internally. And we push really hard to make sure our teams are having communication in open chat rooms so that everyone can see what's going on and that we create documentation, we create good meeting notes and that those go out to everybody. We record meetings that do happen synchronously. So even if you aren't there, you can rewatch it or go look at the notes and catch up on what was said there. Um, so it's just a different style of communicating. Um, you know, the remote is interesting as well. Uh, it's definitely not cheaper. Uh, we still have some office space uh, due to a number of different like tech things that we've we've got in in office spaces and whatnot. But the um, uh, it you know when you look at the full kind of stack compensation and of like what it costs to employ somebody like we're now in multiple states like the overhead of just managing that is such a pain in the rear if you're actually doing it properly as employees and not as contractors which a lot of people violate us law and have a lot of contractors that should be considered full-time employees um, yeah so that's definitely something that a lot of folks are not considering and are going to get you know, You're in trouble in with the, eventually. Yeah, you get you get in trouble with that. Um, so you know, so that overhead, you know, get-togethers and you know, just putting people up in hotels for a couple of days, <laughs> like that's multiple months worth of rent in most people's cases. Um, so you know, and we do lots of things remote. So like we're shipping stuff to people, and you know, we still have teams get together and flying to conferences. And you know, if I want to get any team together, like everyone's flying and traveling extensive distances now versus hey, we're in the office every day. Like I can meet with whoever I want. Um, if you're going to meet, you know, so it just uh, shifts where the cost is located. Yeah, it's just it it kind of reallocates expenses. So um, I wouldn't say it's definitely not cheaper. Uh, it's just it much, much like working in an office versus working remote. One's not better than the other. They're just different. Um, and, and you can optimize a company for doing one or the other. Uh, I don't, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm personally not a believer in hybrid. I feel like that's going to fail. Uh, and a lot of companies are going to realize that. And I think there's a lot of old school managers that manage based on butts in seats and don't know how to manage people remotely effectively because you have to, you manage more based on your actual work product, which is how you should manage even when they're in an office, but most people don't, um, you know, so yeah, they're, they're, they're looking at time clocks. Did we get eight hours of your time today? Yeah. Not did we get a good outcome? 
Right. Or, um, you, you know, you were at your computer and you looked busy versus like, what'd you actually get done? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know um, one of the other companies I have a small ownership stake in, um, we're, we're hybrid, right? And it's hybrid because it has to be because um, the, uh, uh, the, we have a warehouse and we have the warehouse okay. manufacturing section yep. and those people show up. That's where the office yep. is. And then the rest of the team is remote. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's interesting because like, like I go in, I go into the warehouse when I'm in, in the area and like, I, so I know them, but like a lot of the team has never, like they've never met before. And you can tell that it's like, it's an interesting, I, I totally see where you see that it causing problems. Yeah. Um, I think that we there's... definitely have the, we have the warehouse staff who manages the warehouse and the manufacturing stuff. And then we have the remote staff. Yep. Um, and it definitely creates this, like this little separation of like the company, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, th there's certain aspects of like hybrid that like, you know, you got a physical warehouse, you got to ship atoms like that. You know, there's a requirement for those, like not every role can be done from home. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in our, in our business, like the vast majority of what we do, there's only a couple of roles that are really like, and most of them are like internal IT type things where it's like, you got to deal with our laptops and so equipment like, do you guys and that have, sort of thing. Do you guys have your own data centers or do you guys leverage things like AWS and Microsoft's, what is it? Is we're, uh, we're hybrid in the cloud. <laughs> Since yeah. we're a hybrid. So yeah, we have some of our own data centers and we have stuff in the cloud. So there's a lot of- Because um, uh, I was like- for a there tech are a company, lot of the data center is like the equivalent of a manufacturing like that's people yeah. have to show up and make the data center work yeah no absolutely so there, there's definitely certain types of workloads that are much much like everybody says like oh move it to the cloud it's cheaper no it's really not it can be a lot more expensive in certain cases so there's some components of what we do that is more it makes a lot more financial sense to do uh in our own data centers um, you know, obviously that's constantly an evolution on where, you know, where it makes the most sense to do that from a cost and reliability standpoint. Um, but yeah, we do have, we do have some of our own data centers to, to manage workloads for customers and so forth, both internally and externally. Yeah, that's cool. And definitely an interesting discussion. So, um, I, you know, just in the interest of, interest of time, I want to move on and talk a little bit about the, about the flip side of your superpower which is of course the fatal flaw right just like every superman has his kryptonite or wonder woman can't remove her bracelets of victory without going mad you probably had a flaw that's held you back in your business something you struggled with for me i struggled with a long time for perfect with perfectionism like I, if it wasn't exactly right i wouldn't ship it um and you know that's a pretty low bar because then you never ship anything um i also struggled with lack of self-care for a long time i didn't have good boundaries with my clients didn't have good boundaries with my time i, I once thought i would see how how well it would go to uh, go three days without sleeping doesn't go well you know puking in the bushes in case you were wondering um <laughs> yeah but i think more important than what the flaw is is how have you worked to overcome it so you could still continue to grow your business and hopefully sharing your experience will help our listeners learn a little from you yeah, for me, uh, I would say, and my wife would be uh, shaking her head vigorously in agreement. Like I'm, I'm too direct in many ways. Uh, if uh, you know, if I don't like something you did, I'm probably going to tell you pretty directly. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, that has its pros and cons. Uh, you know, generally, everyone that you know, I, I, you know, that I surround myself with, and that that is around me like you know appreciates direct feedback like they know exactly where they stand with me at any given point um and it's not that i am you know my my directness is never targeted at like being mean um or being angry or upset or anything like that which i think a lot of people can it can take that the wrong way and 
think yeah. that I'm just an asshole. <laughs> I try not to be, but like, you know, it's, it's more that I, you know, in that kind of detailed oriented that I looked at before, like I can see where things can be better. And I have a very direct way of saying like, Hey, I think like this, these parts are really awesome. Let's that's cool. And I spend like 10% of my time talking about like what was really awesome because we already nailed that. Like why spend all your time talking about that? And I'll spend like 90% of my time talking about the things that I think like could be better. And, and that can often come across uh, or be interpreted in a way that is not, not as good as it could. So I'm very aware that that's just kind of my natural proclivity. So I try to constantly kind of mediate that spend a little more time talking about what we did well and why I think we did it well so that we can recreate that with other people. So, um, you know, so it becomes kind of a, a training and education for, for other teams. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's probably my, yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely direct. an interesting thing. Cause it's, it's, and, and, and it's, it's interesting. Cause it's like, the, it's like, directly related to the detail oriented nature right the superpower and yeah the other side of this that the 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 fatal flaw that comes from it yep. is like i see i see everything so then i see the flaws really clearly and but then i spend too much time talking about those and not the things that we're doing right sometimes so I, i'm very conscious of making sure that i spend more time praising and talking about what we did well and why i think we did it well but yeah. And I think, I think that second part is really important, the uh, why. And it's one of the things that like, um, with that, like we focus a lot on with, with, uh, like our documentation in our company is like, I, anytime we do documentation, I always tell my, myself mostly. And then my staff who works on documentation for things is like, you, we start with the why, like not, I mean, we, like we have, we have our process documentation template. And like the biggest part of it is like, why does this process exist the way that it does? Yep. Cause we want to teach people the thinking behind the process and not just the steps. Yep. Um, and what I've noticed that does is it helps the people who are looking at the documentation later and actually implementing it in their day-to-day -day jobs to ask better questions and come up with better solutions and then be like, hey, your thinking says this and then the process says these things. I've come up with a better way to do this based on you know why we're doing it. Um, yep. And if you just give them the how-tos, just like the step-by-step -step and not the thinking, then you you turn off the thinking essentially. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So yeah, absolutely. That's and we yeah. and we approach much of our documentation in the same way. So but it, it takes constant iteration to be able to get there and constant reminders of like, you know, because it takes time to do that. Uh, yeah. Versus like, I can just mash out the steps to do this thing. But then whoever has to do it, just becomes kind of this like mindless process person, and they don't understand. And, you know, we talk a lot about uh, company culture. And to me, uh, company culture is very different than uh, how a lot of people would define it. And I think like, if you ask most, you know, kind of team members and employees, they would say company culture is all about like your benefits and perks and how fun it is to work there and all that kind of stuff. And I totally disagree with that. Like, that's just how a company should be. But the, like, you should have good perks and good benefits and be a fun place to work. Like if, if that should be yeah, the baseline. If, if you're, yeah, that shouldn't <laughs> be the baseline. Uh, you know, but for me, like culture is how we make decisions together and how we communicate the, the, the thinking behind why we make the decisions so that the rest of the team can make similar decisions with the same kind of, um, you know, ethics and morals around, you know, how we exist as a company uh, so that I don't, 
you know, need to necessarily spell out every decision that we make or every process that we make because they can come up with, hey, well, you know, in this scenario, because, you know, this customer's sick and they have this, like, we're able to treat them in a way that, you know, makes everyone whole and, and you know, retains them as a long-term customer and so forth, just based on how we've uh, kind of defined our ethics uh, and decision-making process across across the organization over time. So yeah, yeah, and it's one of those things that like if you don't if you don't do that, and I like I learned this firsthand early on when you know with my company. Um, I it wasn't that long ago that I was it was just me, and I remember one of my mastermind um, mastermind. I was the uh, one of the guys at the the that was heading it up you know, he pulled me aside and he's like, you're doing a lot of really cool things with your agency, but he's like, you need to hire people and you need to hire this person to do this thing. And you need to do it like now. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking, I was like, I can't, I don't know how to do that. And a lot of it had to do with like that, that process sort of thing, like actually teaching the why behind things. Cause I didn't know how to get it out of my head and like actually grow what you're calling the culture. Right. The, uh, yep. um, it was like, how can I get them to think like I do? Um, and it wasn't a never ending really process thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's been really helpful. I said, we got a long ways to go before we're Aweber size, but still like that's, it's such an, such an essential skill as an entrepreneur to learn how to, how to build that kind of a culture for other people. Um, yeah. so that, you know, it's your business is growing and can grow, I guess, even without you being the one who's making the growth happen. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, if you look at like what I spend my day on these days, I don't do much, <laughs> which is kind of funny to say out loud, but like, I spend a lot of like, when it when it comes to like servicing our customer base, I'm not like the doer that does the things that you know is affecting most of our customers. But like what I'm spending my time on is documentation and process and all the things behind the scenes that help the rest of our team then execute to do the stuff that we're doing for our customers. Um, yeah, yeah. So and it it, have... it it feels yeah. like a, a giant time sink at times, but like the 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 timelines are just longer. The, the bigger you get, the timelines on, on affecting those changes take longer because you got more people to have to influence to, to you know, make those, make those moves. One of the things we talk about, I have a, a Thursday afternoon mastermind. We get together with a bunch of business owners that are, you know, right around the same, same sort of like growth structure we are. And one of the things we talk about all the time is how important, like, like one of the highest level jobs that you have as a CEO is process and documentation, uh, yep. which feels like it shouldn't be a thing that you do as the, the CEO, but it's like one of the most important things you can do. Yep. And, and, a, and a lot of it going back to your, you know, your statement is, you know, a lot of people can write down the specific steps to do a process, but understanding the why is, is really important. So, uh, you yeah. know, that's, I spent a lot of time writing exactly that sort of thing. So funny that you absolutely you know pretty much it's like just nailed it <laughs> it's exactly where we are and it's I, I like i i feel fortunate to have learned that as a younger company than having to like i don't know i don't know what it looks like if you don't learn it young um but i imagine it would be more difficult i think every every company goes through that uh you know through that phase so like we just we just acquired another small company and and the uh um 
that hasn't been announced who it was or what it was yet. But like, you know, part of that integration phase is like, okay, well, what do you, what do you have here? And like, what do you have in the way of documentation? And because it was a small company, it was only a handful of people, like they had very little documentation. So most of what we spent the last couple of weeks doing is writing documentation <laughs> um, and the, and the why's behind like, okay, well you do it like this, but like, why do you do it that way? Like, did you do it a different way over here? Because, you know, our team's going to show up and be like, Hey, we can optimize this. Oh, they've already, you know, tried to do that and it didn't work because of X, Y, and Z. Um, oh, so yeah. it's, it, you know, it's interesting, even as a larger company to kind of go through that process with another company kind of coming into the fold, uh, you, you, you kind of rinse and repeat those same exercises. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's really interesting about that is I mentioned the company that we have the manufacturing arm for, mm -hmm. um, and they're in the process of trying to, um, trying to sell. Uh, okay. and one of the things that like I've came in and talked to the, the owners there is like, Hey, if we want to sell and you want to be acquired by someone else, we have to nail the documentation for everything. I was like, because your company will be more valuable to a, <laughs> to a buyer. If, if you have everything documented, well, otherwise you guys have like, I, we call it the golden handcuffs, right? You know, they're going to need you to come and explain everything. Um, you'll yeah. be able to like, cause they want to retire. They want to step out and retire. Yeah. I was like, if you don't have everything documented, you won't be able to step out and retire because they're going to need you to come and explain why you're doing these things, these ways. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, the more you can remove the, the, the more, you know, unnecessary you are to your business, the, I think the, the higher the value is overall, like, obviously, I have an impact if I disappeared tomorrow, that would, you know, not be great for for a Weber and the team. But I like to think that they'd survive even given my absence. And, and frankly, as a C CEO and founder, like, if I haven't set our team up, to be able to be successful without me, I'm not doing my job well. Uh, and the rest of our kind of executive management team are not doing their jobs well either. Uh, so it's, you know, there's, as, as you go through different phases of growth, the, the, those needles move on where you need to have redundancies and, you know, where, where you need to create that, you know. Uh, this, this might be morbid, but I call that the bus test. Yeah, hit by a bus tomorrow. Absolutely. <laughs> yep, the bus factor is real. So, and that goes <laughs> like across you all want to roles. Think about it, but like, yeah. yeah, we we talk we talk about that with our engineering team oftentimes because a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, just a lot of you have to untrain bad behaviors from from people frequently because a lot of organizations operate really dysfunctionally and you know you bring somebody in and it's you know you talk with them and hey where did you write that thing down it's like yeah but I'm the expert I I know how to do it and it's like yeah but people that fly airplanes are experts too, but they still have a checklist every time they take off the airplane or every time they land the airplane. Because when they don't use a checklist, someone dies yeah. or someone gets hurt or something expensive breaks. So, you know, we're very like, okay, if I send an email wrong, somebody might not die, but like, I definitely have specific instances that I can point to where emails that have been sent from our platform have saved lives. So, you know, I, I try to set our team up to, to create that same environment of like, hey, if you're doing something, like it should have a checklist because, you know, if it breaks in the middle of the night and you need to fix it, your 3 a.m. brain is not the same as your 10 a.m. brain. Yeah. <laughs> um, and having those checklists become a really good sanity check, you know, of like, okay, I didn't mess a step. I didn't mess a step. I didn't mess. No one's dying. No one's dying. No one's dying. You know, and yeah. And, it also removes them as a single point of failure should, you know, they get sick or, you know, they'd be out on vacation or whatever. I don't have to bug you because you, 
I already have what's in your brain to be able to step through that process and someone else can fix it. Uh, and the person that is able to create that documentation, write that why that you've talked about really well, um, you know, those people that can create that documentation are significantly more valuable to the organization than, you know, Joe that sits in the corner and says, I'm the expert. It's all in my head. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, Joe, you look like a liability to me. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And shift, um, I, shifting that thinking is is hard for some people. One, one of the things that I think is uh, is really valuable and something we've done um, with our podcasting org organization is figure out how to build our documentation into our project management system. Um, so the uh, um, so the actual like the the checklist that they go through. Um, mm -hmm. and I, so like the way I, I've started explaining it to my team is you have you have your uh, your checklist, you have your your macro steps and your micro steps. So like the, just, just as a really basic example, you know, we upload a video, you know, a customer's podcast to YouTube, right? The, uh, the, the step on the project management system might just say upload to YouTube because someone who has done this a hundred times before knows all the things that go into it, but the documentation that's linked to it, that's just got a link right next to it. And every time we, you know, that pops up, it just automatically adds a checklist to it. It's got a yeah. little link on it that goes to the documentation. That walks through is like open the chrome browser here's the reason why we use the chrome browser right and you navigate to this page and you log in here and you click on this button and you do these things and like and it's, yep. it's very minutiae oriented so someone who we picked up off the street we could give them that documentation and they could follow follow the right. steps but yep. the checklist is for an expert to use someone who knows how to fly the plane right because they're going to look at like yes i uploaded that to youtube yes i did this you know i did whatever the next step is um, and anyways, we found that to be really valuable is to be able to put the documentation into the actual project management step so they can't like move on to the next portion yep. of the project until that one, like they've checked off all the things. It becomes a visual indicator that you followed the process. So yeah, yeah no, we do the same thing. So we use Jira internally and we have built in checklists that keep track of like who checked the box, when did they check the box? Uh, so you can create that kind of sanity check. So, because it's, you know, it's across all the elements. So like, you know, when we ship new software, we, we don't just hit, sh you know, ship to production and, and there we go. Cause you know, I could break, you know, hundreds of thousands of people's stuff that they're doing. Yeah, so yeah. You know, having quality control and making sure that like, okay, engineers saw it, you know, tech lead review, you know, have reviewed it. It's gone through that peer review process. We've looked at it from a security perspective. It's gone through our quality assurance team and they make sure that it actually works according to the product spec. Um, so there's a lot of steps that go along in there. And those are different teams and different hands that touch each of those and creating an element of, um, you know, uh, accountability behind who's doing what and that, you know, so-and-so did it and they put their name on it, that it was done properly. And when it's not, it becomes a coachable moment of, hey, we missed this. Here's what happened. How do we avoid having that happen again in the future? Um, you know, we try not to make the same mistakes twice because that's just bad. Do you guys you know? do, you guys do the, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the software term for this is because I'm not a software engineer, but like where you roll out a change to like a small portion of users first to see how mm -hmm. it functions properly. Yep. Yeah. What's the name for that? <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of different, so we, we call it feature flagging internally. Uh, and then we, we ramp up, uh, depends on what the feature is, like certain things you can feature flag and, and ramp up over time. Other things you kind of have to cut over just depends on what it is. Um, 
but uh you know you can do like canary testing like there's a bunch of different like terms for it depending on what what it is but for us it's you know we have what they call a feature flag so there's a lot of like in any like right now in our platform if you know the right urls to go to there's probably a half a dozen different unreleased features that are out in production um that you could hit if you knew where to go and we often have like external beta testers go and poke at those and real customers we do like ux interviews with folks just to make sure like hey when we revamp things much to the disagreement of comments that you might read online of like oh, i can't believe you released this thing without anyone's feedback it's like no like dozens and dozens of people have looked at this before and we've used it we've got lots of lots and lots of testing on it and like doesn't mean we won't find things when it gets out in the real world because real world's a you know tricky beast but uh the uh yeah you know, being yeah. able to kind of ramp those things up over time and see how it changes behaviors. So a lot of, you know, what we do might be, it might be a new feature, but a lot of times it's, it's an optimization of a previous feature that we want to, you know, make it easier for people to share YouTube videos. So like when we share a YouTube video, you might've previously had to pull in like a screenshot and, you know, link that up. Whereas now if you paste in a YouTube link, like it just turns into, um, you know, a video preview with like the little play button over the top of it. Um, and and well, it's those sort nice. of things that make it easier for people to create their content. Um, but you have to be able to measure the performance of those and the interactions with those and see how people use it and whether or not you know the way that you thought it was going to get used is actually how it gets used <laughs> that's often surprising uh yeah so you know yeah people yeah, are interesting interesting uh folks to try to predict so you think you've got it nailed through, uh, then they don't going through something similar the uh the e-com company with the manufacturing we're currently having a problem where the customers are not understanding how to pay invoices like if they do a if they we have to do like a, a custom like shipping quote or something and send them an invoice uh -huh. um and it's like it's really it, like from our standpoint it looks like it's really clear because it's like it says here's your invoice click this link to pay the invoice and like you click it and it goes pulls the ends pulls up the invoice and just asks for the payment details it seems like it'd be really simple yeah um, but we're having a lot of people that are like i don't understand how to pay the invoice and we're like click the link that says pay the invoice like how could it be hard but anyways we have to go through and figure out like what's wrong with it yeah <laughs> uh, and sometimes just being direct of like hey you pay the invoice by clicking the link below <laughs> yeah the one so, that says pay this invoice yeah so sometimes it's the most obvious of of things that actually you know completely change user behavior around stuff so um, yeah you know and just like I, I know you probably know this already but those of us who are like power users on your platforms when you guys reach out and ask for feedback on like beta stuff i love going through those things and like and like beating the crap out of them to see what i can do and when you see, give feedback and you get responses back like hey that's actually a good idea or that was helpful or something like that we love that kind of stuff so no absolutely yeah I, I love i love feedback from users i love jumping on the phone with with folks or jumping on a session uh, and watching how people interact with the platform i find that you often learn more based on what people actually do versus what they tell you they do um you know similarly like when you're building software you know understand what the problem is that somebody's trying to solve because oftentimes they'll tell you they want x y or z feature and it's like, okay, but 
I could build that feature, but like, why do you want that feature? What is it that you're trying to do with that? Um, and really understanding what someone's trying to solve with, with that particular feature. That translation skill again. Yeah, often turns into a better feature or something entirely different than what they asked for that actually completely solves it much better than they would have ever come up with on their own. But having the context of being able to ask, you know, hundreds or thousands of people for input and feedback on that. Um, you know, it, so the, those sort of things are are super valuable, and you'd be shocked at how few people often give feedback when asked directly. And it's like, I think sometimes they feel like it's going to somewhere where you know you're just part of a giant list and a giant queue, and no one's ever going to read it. And it's like when we ask for feedback from from our users, we read every single one of them. There are you know dozens yeah, of people I mean, internally that read every single one of those, and use that as a part of their you know day to day business functions. To I was like I don't, I've I've noticed that with a lot of software companies because like a lot of times they'll be like hey we're releasing an alpha or a beta or something like that and if you want to test it you can go here with feedback mm -hmm. and I always participate in those whenever it's something that I use on a regular basis yeah. and you always get responses back um, and they're like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't see it being used that way or whatever. Um, or like we found a way to solve that problem, stuff like that. Like I just had one the other day that like they built this whole thing and they did all the testing, and everything. They were in the alpha stage and it wouldn't work in Safari. They were like, oh, our whole engineering team was using Chrome and we didn't, we'd like, it just didn't, didn't yep, dawn it on did, them. It didn't like, occur. Yep. <laughs> it didn't occur to them. They're like, oh, it doesn't work at all in Safari, like at all. Yep. Like they're like, oh, we have to, we have to fix that. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So, and things like that, that like, you know, might want, if depending on how big your team is, you, you might not realize until it gets out in the real world. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I was like, because yeah. they were a small engineering team. There's only like two or three of them, and they were working on the software, and they were all, they built the whole thing in Chrome, which is great. Yeah. It was working fine in Chrome. And it wasn't until they asked for feedback from their alpha users. Um, that someone popped it up and was like, it doesn't, it doesn't work in Safari. They're and, like, oh yeah, and when no, you get it, about that. Yeah. And when you get to a certain size, like eventually you start running into like, oh, you're running a Chrome plugin that's messing with the code on our site. That's completely breaking things. It's like, our site's not broken. It's your Chrome plugin that's breaking things. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and people don't realize that oftentimes it's like, your site's the only one that doesn't work. It's like, well, you know, let, let's, let's take a step back and diagnose Try it in a different browser. Oh, it works in a different browser. Well, it's clearly not our site then. <laughs> it's clearly um, something going on with your browser. So there's clearly something going on with like, it works in our browser here, but like, okay, well, what other plugins you have? Oh, it's not one of my plugins. Well, I can guarantee you an awful lot of plugins inject a lot of stuff into websites that you're surfing around without you realizing it. Uh, and until you get a large enough user base that you start running into those kind of like weird edge cases um, that you know, you start hearing those. Grammarly is probably the biggest uh, offender of that. They inject all kinds of stuff into your website that you don't even realize and it causes havoc at times. I have to, uh, like, I, I, and this might just be a personal practice that I wish more people who understood how they worked. It's like, I, I run all the plugins off. And oh, yeah. Until I need to use something, I'll be like, I'll turn Grammarly on to do something with it. And then as soon as I'm yep. done, I'll turn it back off again. Yeah, um, I have because... very specific safe lists for which which plugins can operate and see which websites. So I very rarely run them in like open mode. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about your customers then. We talk um, talk about on the show your common enemy, right? Every superhero has an arch nemesis, right? It's something they constantly have to fight against in their world. And we like to put this in the context of your clients. And it's a mindset or a flaw that they come to the table with that you guys have to fight to overcome. 
so you can actually get them as a result that they came to you for, right? Um, and, you know, if you had your magic wand and every time someone signed up for Aweber, if you could just, you know, bop them on the head and not have to deal with that common enemy, what do you think the common enemy is in the uh, email marketing world? Uh, permission doesn't apply to me. <laughs> everyone wants my emails. Uh, I, or my emails are special, but everyone else's aren't. Uh, you know, it's it's that kind of like, you know, everyone wants my emails. No, everyone doesn't want your emails. That list you bought is not special. They don't all want to hear from you because you're in that industry and they don't all want to buy that thing that you think that they all want to buy. Uh, you know, permission matters uh, and it's important. So if, if I could skip that whole process, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how much um, does this magic wand cost? <laughs> you're like, I want it. Where do I get it from? Um, yeah. So so like one of the things that I know like we're, we're doing right now in our e-commerce company is like we have a list of people who are, who are interested in our, our reseller program, but we don't have permission to email them. So it's like, I don't know, it's like 700 people. But so we have their email addresses, we have their phone numbers, but we're not putting them into a, a list like Aweber um, because one, you wouldn't let us and it doesn't actually work. You just get spam complaints. Um, so we're we like we're calling we're calling through those people um, and just finding out like what their interests are and um, and whether or not they're actually interested in um, in you know becoming a reseller or doing things like that. And it's very it's a very manual process of mm -hmm. actually like calling and interacting and finding out what kind of permission we can get, if any, um, to do further marketing. Um, and I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on how people can do more of that or do that more effectively so they can get to the point where they can do the permission-based marketing that you're doing? Because, you know, like buying lists and getting access to lists is a part of marketing. It's just, it's not permission marketing. It's a, it's a different animal. Yeah, there's there's no shortcuts uh, at the end of the day. Like you there's a certain amount of work you have to do in order to be successful. It's kind of like Aweber, we're like we're overnight success, you know, 20 some years ago. 25 going. years, right? <laughs> you know, um, I always round down uh, at this point. <laughs> Makes me feel better. Um, the, uh, yeah, there, there really aren't any shortcuts. You gotta, you gotta put in the work in order to build the audience and to build the permission that you do. And, and those that, that do that, you know, see success over times and that, those that try to take the shortcuts and mail the list that they shouldn't mail, like they get booted off the platforms that they're, you know, that they're using, or you might get away with it for a short period of time, but like mailbox from Gmail, Yahoo, Microsoft, et cetera, they're really good at detecting that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, if we had another two hours, I could give you a slight glimmer into like email deliverability and all those things that they can track and tech, uh, and look at, but like, they know when you bought the purchase list, they know when you haven't been emailing that audience before your emails will go to the spam folder. Eventually, if you continue to do that sort of stuff, you might get away with it a couple of times. Um, but in the long run, that's, it's not a healthy way to, to build your audience, um, you know, it's, it's so, just like, you look at social audiences, like, yeah, I can go and, you know, hire people to, to get me more followers. They're all bots and it's not, it's not productive. So, uh, it's the same sort of people. thing, Amy ML, you, you, you want permission and engagement and people that are actually interested in what you're doing it requires work. You just got to do it. So just sort of like on that topic of like email deliverability and like them being able to track like all sorts of different things with email, have you noticed a big impact with like I, I, Apple has released a bunch of new features in the last couple of operating systems that are supposedly supposed to like hide your interaction with email from the email service providers. Have you guys noticed like a big impact to that with like your guys' analytics and your stats and stuff like that and how that yeah, it, you users? know, 
So basically the, the main change you'll hear it talked about is the Apple MPP changes. Um, and uh, it, it basically puts the, so when you open an email and, and you load the images that are in that email, it pulls those images in through Apple servers rather than directly from the end servers. So we no longer like see your end user IP address, albeit they're still sort of geolocated. So you can still kind of approximately figure out where somebody might be opening a message from. But one of the things that they're also doing is they're doing what's called pre-caching. So like at night, when you plug in your phone on your nightstand or whatever, and you charge your phone overnight, um, it's downloading and pre-caching, pre-loading those uh, the images that are in those messages. So the the byproduct of that is is when you load an image in an email, that is seen by an email service provider like Aweber as an open. It's just how the technology works. Like an open isn't really necessarily measuring a human doing something. It's just measuring that someone loaded a particular image, um, and it's very hard to tell the difference between you know, your, your computer just doing it because it's plugged in in your nightstand or like it's because you're thumbing through your emails on your, on your email client. Um, so that has had the effect of, you know, essentially inflating open rate stats so that you're seeing a higher open rates now. So like, you know, I've talked to many of marketing teams that are like, oh, our opens are, are way up and we're doing a great job with these new campaigns that we're doing. It's like, yeah, when did you start seeing those increased opens? Um, yeah, that's when, that's, that's when the a new iOS version released and you're being affected based on the MPP and like, doesn't mean you're not sending bad, you know, you're not sending great stuff, but like, you can't necessarily attribute all of that change just to what you're doing from yeah. a content Have you guys had to do a lot of education on that perspective with your clients? Yeah, but that's, I can't say that that's always been, that's an ongoing process constantly because although Apple is the latest one to do that, Google's done it in the past. Microsoft has done it. Like all the platforms have done various degrees of these sort of proxying messages and proxying opens and images and, you know, pre-downloading things. Like every now and then you'll get somebody that's like, yeah, my open rate went off the chart at Google. And it's like, yeah, because they think your emails are sketchy and they're running them through their malware software to see whether or not your emails are, you know, are, are bad. And it's like, that's a big warning sign. If your open rates suddenly go from like, like very little to very high, it means you're on their, you're on the naughty list and they're looking at your messages really hard. So, you know, there signals that you might think as an end user mean one thing could actually mean something completely different. Um, you know, so your open rates going down suddenly or having low open rates can be an indicator that your messages are going to the spam folder, like, you know, a low complaint rate, like, hey, I don't get any complaints. Yeah, because all your messages go to the spam folder and you complaints from the spam folder. You're already in the spam folder. <laughs> so like it's, it's already done. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, so, with, so there's a lot of balance there. With uh, with Aweber, I like it's been a while since I've done this because, um, like, I set all my stuff up years and years ago. Um, but when you set up like your domain, like I want to send emails from, you know, say like my name, right, Richard Matthews me. It's like you know, support mm -hmm. at Richard Matthews me or whatever. You have to set up like the SPI, SPF records and the DKM records and stuff like that. Do you guys have to do all that with with Aweber stuff, or do they all send from your domain or like for, so, for customers? Because I know that has to do with like reputation, right? Like, and yeah, the domain's absolutely. reputation. There, there's absolutely, we recommend, and we have some process for uh, kind of automating this, the DNS setup for uh, for your domain to send from. You can send it without, 
but it's a best practice and we're going to push you heavily to, to, to configure those. It's, it's usually just a couple of clicks, um, depending on your mm -hmm. registrar that you have based on some of the integrations that we do. Um, but it's actually, you know, definitely a recommendation. You usually, if you're sending, um, messages from, uh, an email service provider, like Aweber, you don't need to set up SPF records specifically, um, because you would be covered under the SPF records that we already have. Um, but you definitely setting up DKIM, uh, we recommend setting up, uh, DMARC records. There's a bunch of authentication stuff that we kind of walk, uh, new users through setting up. Um, uh, most of it can be done with just a couple of clicks. So it, it's, it's not the super geeky process that it used to be. Um, so what are, what are the, uh, like, what's the short non-geeky version of like why it's important to set those things up? So. Basically what it does is it helps you attribute, it helps mailbox providers like Gmail and Yahoo and so forth, attribute the messages that you're sending specifically to your domain um, so that you can build up a reputation. So it's kind of like, um, I don't know what the good equivalent is, but it, like it's, you know, it's like you going to, you know, your favorite establishment and they punch your little like frequent, you know, frequent visitor club and eventually you get certain rewards as a result of that. You know, when, when Google sees you delivering emails that people like and open and click and reply to and forward to other people and, and, you know, file away into, you know, into their email folders or tags, you know, that helps build your reputation in their system and they go, Richard sends great emails. We want to make sure his emails go to the spam folder or excuse me, to the inbox. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're not sending from a domain that they can directly attribute to you, like if you're using a Gmail address to send uh, your emails out to your subscriber base, like all that reputation just kind of flows to Gmail and flows to every other user that uses a Gmail address. Uh, so you're not as able to build a reputation around that. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you, let's say you're a, a plumber and you have the completely plain white, you know, Econo van versus the one that you had wrapped and it has your brand all around it yeah. and it's nice. And when you show up in the driveway, everyone knows who you are and like, you've got a good brand and, you know, you do good work. It's the same sort of kind of equivalent. The as, digital email equivalent. Yeah. I yeah. Know, like the way, the way I've always explained it to clients is like, if you ever, if you ever used uh, um, like click funnels or lead pages, they'll always let you build like a sales page that uses like, you know, my name dot clickfunnels.com or whatever yep. it is dot leadpages.com. And then like places like Facebook or other things, you go to share your share your page on there. It'll be like, we're sorry, that's a spam. That's a spam. Like, um, you know, it, it triggers their spam bots because, you know, sure. everyone, good, bad, and indifferent um, on that platform will use the clickfunnels.com domain. But as soon as you put your own domain on it, then, yeah, then you're it's not, fine. yeah, then it's, it's yours, right? Because it's, and then it's just your reputation yep. instead of like everyone who's used that service's reputation. And it becomes mobile too then, because the, the fact that you've built that reputation on your domain, if you decide to use another email platform later, um, you know, to migrate off to, uh, you can bring that reputation with you as you go versus having to start over again or have to start with whatever the reputation of the platform is. So much of email deliverability, like, you know, when we talk to users that are going to the spam folder, 99% of the reason that they're going to the spam folder is because of something they're doing. <laughs> it's very yeah. rarely something that's going on our platform. And almost the default, everyone is like, your email, your, your platform is making our emails go to spam. We're going to go to another provider. And it's like, well, good luck with that because your emails are going to continue to go to the spam folder because it's something you're doing and it's you need to do these three things that'll make sure that you get out of the spam folder and build a proper reputation 
Uh, and, you know, some users are like, oh, so, okay, like, I didn't know that. Let's do those. And they, so if your they domain get results. gets blacklisted, so to speak, where you start always getting sent to the spam folder, is there any way to recover from that? Yeah. It's, yeah, it takes time and dedication and you, you basically have to, depends on where it is and on how you would, um, you know, recover from that, you know, but like, let's say it was Gmail was started sending your stuff to the spam folder, stop sending to Gmail uh, for a while. Um, you know, you can continue necessarily sending your other messages, but I would think strongly about what it is that you're sending and why Gmail started putting your emails to the spam folder because if gmail starts putting them in a spam folder eventually all the other providers are going to do the same sort of thing because they see you know they're not they don't operate exactly the same but they're looking for the same things yeah exactly so it it can be kind of that canary in a coal mine of like hey the the little birdie just died look out for all the other birdies that are going to die soon thereafter so stop sending to gmail you know, you want to let that domain kind of, um, you know, rest and and not have mail traffic on it for a while, uh, for several weeks, uh, and then take and segment your list of the most engaged, you know, most frequent clickers and openers uh, that you have and start to send to them again in small quantities and gradually ramp up in the amount of volume back to whatever it was that you were originally doing. But again, you, you want to holistically, you can't just stop send to the your most engaged people and then continue sending the same stuff that you were before to the same overall mailing list because you're going to end up right back in the spam folder because you've changed none of your actual behaviors so there was a reason that you ended up in the spam folder and you need to inherently change what that was what it was that was causing that you know the most common thing that i see is people don't set expectations around the frequency in which they're going to send so i go to your website and i sign up for your newsletter and i think in my head like oh i'm going to get your monthly newsletter and you start sending me emails four times a day well what am i going to do i'm going to market a spam or i'm going to delete it every single time um and eventually enough people do that and now the people that do want your four times a day newsletter aren't going to get your messages either. So it's permission, but set expectations. You know, how frequently am I going to get it? What am I going to get? Uh, those are the two biggest things that that you can do up front to make sure you have a successful, highly engaged list. You know, some of the highest engaged lists that we see are people that send on a schedule um, and their emails are familiar and show up you know, regularly in your inbox in a way that's recognizable. They're not cute with their subject lines. They don't do the little FWD colon, whatever, you know, thing I'm promoting or RE, like I'm replying, I'm getting a reply to an email that I sent. Like, don't play tricks on your subscribers. Like do what you would want to see in your own inbox. If you'd be annoyed about seeing your messages in your inbox, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> um, and if you kind of put that hat on, I think it, most most people would see remarkable improvements in what they're doing. One one of the things I tell people all the time is because um, we work in the podcasting space, people always ask me like, "What's what's the frequency we should do our podcast?" And I was like, "Think about serialized fiction. Right? Every every serialized fiction TV show you've watched on Netflix or Amazon or you know back in the day when they used to do them on cable television, right? The uh, it was like they come out every Thursday with a new episode, and it's at eight yep. o'clock." Right. Yep. And it and the episode follows a particular arc. Right. It's like, you know, the bad guy comes and then like you have the, the discussion about the bad guy and then they try to find what's going on with it. And then they find the wrong bad guy because it's always the wrong bad guy first. And then they find the real bad guy. Right. It's like the same. It's the same sort of cadence that happens every single week. Yep. Um, and I was like, 
people are creatures of habit. So if you're going to put your podcast together, your newsletter together, create a cadence that people want to show up for that they're expecting. Yep, exactly. And that fits into kind of their time scale of when they want to interact with it. Like, you know, if it's something that takes time to consume or you have to go off and do something with it, you know, should you be sending that on Friday afternoon if it's a business related thing? You know, that gets yeah. into that, like, hey, what's the best time of day to send an email? Or what's the best day of the week to send an email? Well, it depends <laughs> on a lot of like, variables. I, I tell people all the time, too, is like, if you want to get more opens on your uh, on your emails, learn how to tell stories and create open and closed loops. Yep. Right? If, you, if you open a loop on this one, people are going to show up for next week to get the close on that loop. And if you start training them that you you close loops and then open them with your storytelling and like that kind of stuff, people will show yeah. up and open your emails and read your stuff and consume your content because we're a storyborn people. We can't, we can't help it. Like we, we want to hear the stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, the flip side of your common enemy would of course be your driving force. It's what you fight for, right? So um, just like Spider-Man fights to save New York or Batman fights to save Gotham or, you know, Google fights to index and categorize all the world's information. What is it that you guys fight for at AWeber? Your mission, so to speak. Yeah, so we're, you know, at the top, I think you you kind of let in here, you know, connecting the world's people in remarkable ways. So and we're we're really about creating more personal relationships with, with people around the world. You know, your email list isn't just something to monetize. Uh, you know, the email addresses are real people. Um, and I think that, you know, we help people connect in more real ways um that that are more tangible that create ongoing relationships beyond just a transaction uh and that's really what we've you know ultimately it's why we serve the small business space because i feel like we can more directly do that than like large enterprise corporations that tend to be more you know nameless faceless entities and orgs you know most of our customers are the person that's actually sending you the mail they generally yeah. are not you know huge companies or huge marketing departments doesn't mean we don't have some of those users but you know we we speak directly to most of our end users that are actually in the in the platform on a daily basis um and that's that's what gives me the um you know the passion to to do this for the last 24 years uh is is being able to affect that kind of change and see see the change that you know an email from our platform has had on on people so like when i when i say that like we've sent emails that have saved lives like i have uh, not in my office here but in my office back in pa like i have i have a printout from an email from somebody that said like this email like sent me an email this email saved my life like thank you um so cool. and that that's that's pretty cool like i actually just got shivers even just talking about it now um so that's uh that's pretty cool to be able to know that you have that kind of impact on people around the world yeah, the ripple effect, right? Where where you guys work with your clients and those clients get to go out and work with hundreds, yeah. sometimes thousands or tens of thousands of others. And you make you make an impact impact that is beyond the reach of like your your actual the scope of your product, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We we send billions of emails every month. That's billions of people we're touching. Uh, which is so pretty cool. cool. When you when you like think about it in scale, it's like you know, it's it's like the entire population of the US, like multiple times over. It's 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 kind of mind-boggling to some extent it's like it's like looking at the yeah. uh james webb space telescope uh you know oh, images, man, images like, were something else. <laughs> it's like i don't even know how to process that <laughs> so. i know it was like one of them it was like the uh they were like this is a dark spot spot in space that like we didn't know there was anything there and like we get the pictures back from it and it's like it's so filled with galaxies that there's no blank spaces at all and you're like yep well 
we're a small fish in a big pond. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And now a quick word from our show's sponsor. Hey there, fellow podcaster. Having a weekly audio and video show on all the major online networks that builds your brand, creates fame and drives sales for your business doesn't have to be hard. I know it feels that way because you've tried managing your show internally and realize how resource intensive it can be. You felt the pain of pouring eight to 10 hours of work into just getting one hour of content published and promoted all over the place. You see the drain on your resources, but you do it anyways because you know how powerful it is. Heck, you've probably even tried some of those automated solutions and ended up with stuff that makes your brand look cheesy and cheap. That's not helping grow your business. Don't give up though. The struggle ends now. Introducing Push Button Podcasts, a done-for-you service that will help you get your show out every single week without you lifting a finger after you've pushed that stop record button. We handle everything else, uploading, editing, transcribing, writing, research, graphics, publication, and promotion, all done by real humans who know, understand, and care about your brand almost as much as you do. Empowered by our own proprietary technology, our team will let you get back to doing what you love while we handle the rest. Check us out at pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero for 10% off the lifetime of your service with us and see the power of having an audio and video podcast growing and driving micro-celebrity status and business in your niche without you having to lift more than a finger to push that stop record button. Again, that's pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero. See you there. And now, back to the Hero Show. So I got uh, one more question for you here before we uh, wrap this up, and it's about your guiding principles, right? So one of the things that makes heroes heroic is that they live by a code. For example, Batman never kills his enemies. He only ever puts them in Arkham Asylum. So as we wrap up the interview, I want to talk about the top maybe one or two principles that you live your life by, run your business by, that maybe you wish something you would wish you'd know when you first started out, you know, 25 years ago, 24 years ago. Gosh, core. I would say, you know, it's kind of like the the uh, hiker's creed. You know, leave, leave every place that you go a little better than where you found it. Um, yeah, I, I think that that kind of that probably be best summarizes kind of how I approach life, trying to make everything a little better than it was. So it's I, never going to be perfect, but you can make it a little better. My uh, my first like spiritual mentor in high school is one of the things he sort of like pounded into my head it was like leave it better than you found it he's like even if it's a person right if you can leave them with a smile they didn't have when they started with like you're uh, and it's something that I've always I've always tried to focus on is every place we go we leave it better than you found it and like my kids now the whole hikers creed thing you mentioned like they all we, we go hiking a lot because um, we travel all the time and like my my kids have like a special spot in their backpack for trash that they pick up because that's awesome like, they, can't, they can't help themselves like yeah my, <laughs> My son will be going along and picking things up off of the off the ground as we go places, and he's like, "Yeah, this like this is a plastic thing," and like he's he's all into it because he really likes birds and like they, they affect the birds and whatnot. He's gotten to the point where like he researches this stuff on YouTube and will tell you exactly like what kind of damage that particular type of litter causes to birds in the oh, bird wow. population. And I'm like, I never knew any of those things. We were just like, you know, pick the trash up because it's not good for the environment. My son's yeah. like, you know, it's the reasons why. That's cool. <laughs> that's yeah. cool that makes you proud that's a proud dad yeah, it does. <laughs> so that's uh basically a wrap on our interview but i do finish every interview with a simple challenge i call it the hero's challenge and i do this to help get access to stories i might not otherwise find on my own because not everyone is out doing the podcast rounds like you know you and i might do um so do you have someone in your life or in your network that you think has a cool entrepreneurial story first names are fine um and why do you think they should come on our show and share their story the first person that uh comes to mind for you um hmm gosh it's hard to pick like just one uh 
I'd say my my buddy Andy has a pretty cool story. Um, just in his uh, his his like everlasting kind of passion around life and work, and it kind of has that same approach to like leave the world a little better place. Um, so uh, yeah, that's that's probably who I'd pick at the moment. Okay, well, I'll, we'll see if we can reach out later and get, a, get an introduction to Andy, see if we can get him to come on the show. We always like to get those stories when we can. Um, and, you know, in comic books, there's always the crowd of people at the end who are clapping and cheering for the uh, acts of heroism. So as we close up um, this interview, I want to do just find out where can people find you? Where can they light up the bat signal, so to speak, um, and find out how they can do more with their you know permission-based emails? And I think more importantly than where is who are the right types of people for AWeber? Yeah, so we're, you know, we, like I've talked about a bunch, like we, we help small businesses, both, you know, kind of physical store, you know, physical presence, um, but also a lot of digital creators, um, you know, social creators, YouTube channels, uh, you, you name it, we have customers that do it. Um, you know, as far as finding us, you can check us out at aweber.com, A-W-E-B-E-R.com. I'm on all the social places, so you can always hit me up on uh, Twitter. Uh, I'm Tom at aweber.com if you want to shoot me an email. I, I don't hide behind random email addresses and those sort of things. I love conversations with folks that have listened to to interviews and, you know, users or non-users that, you know, just try to try to solve problems. So, and that's what, uh, that's what I'm good at. So I always like like hearing from folks that have problems that I can hopefully in some way make better. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Tom. Really appreciate your uh, your time. And, uh, you know, I've I've been a longtime user of your product. And uh, it was actually um, AWeber and your guys' blog education that even taught me what permission-based email marketing was in the first place. Um, so way back Score. today when I first got started. So, <laughs> um, you know, you, you guys have been doing a great job and have been a, uh, um, you know, the pivotal in my learning about marketing, you know, 10, 15 years ago which is cool because like not a lot of companies have been around that long. Um, so awesome. Anyways, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on the show today. Do you have any uh, final words of wisdom for our audience before I hit this uh, stop record button? No, just th thanks for having me on. Thanks for being a customer and hope I can help some of your audience as well. Awesome. Have a good day, Tom.